0: And sometimes we have to wonder if what's happening to you, is it possible it's actually happening for you despite how it feels? And no matter where you are in your journey, no matter what you've done, Jesus promises to meet you where you are and love you back to life. His life for yours. It's the great exchange. No greater love is any man than he would lay down his life for his friends
1: you're listening to Michael Easley in Context. And well, normally, this is an interview format show. Dr. Michael Easley, my dad, interviews a subject matter expert or a believer in a certain field, and we're talking about what does it look like to have a biblical worldview in your context. But we're doing something different today against everything in my body. (laughs) Right, Dad? No. (laughs) No. Well, many times, many times, this guy comes to me and says, "I want to do this," and I say, "No," and
2: then I say, "Let me think about it." And, and most it, of the time, I say, "Okay, you don't want to do it." Yeah, that's true. <laughs>
1: and 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 before this sounds like I'm just doing whatever I want to do, I'm trying to create consistency in what you come to. You come to in context, knowing it's going to be forty-five minutes. It's Michael interviewing someone. We have other shows, Michael Easley sermons. You go to that. You know, it's going to be about a forty-five to fifty-five minute hey, sermon. Hey, hey. Ask Dr. E. It's supposed to be a 10-minute show where it's just someone who called or emailed in and Michael answers their questions. So I'm just trying to give you consistent content so that you can come to our show and know what you're going to get and you're here why, because why, you love why, it. Why, why. That's it. We're not doing that today. If you hate it, you can email Michael. Yeah, at Michael. No, I'm just totally, totally. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah. And if you
2: love it, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, the truth is that everyone's gonna love it, and yes. so anyway, that's why we're doing it because I was wrong and you were right. Whoa! We got it recorded. Yeah, it's recorded. That's you can write amazing. it down, date it. And rarely, um, rarely. So, but, Dad, what are we doing today? So,
2: I met Jim Traficant in uh, 1994. i actually been the, at the church about a year before we met. And that began a friendship that continues to this day. Jim had a very unusual disease. It's the same disease that killed Walter Payton. And in fact, he had been sick on and off, on and off. And the day he got a firm diagnosis was the day Walter Payton died. And so that's cemented. But The short version is Jim needed a liver transplant, and this began a very difficult journey of waiting for a donor. Uh, The donation system in our country is very complicated, and if you're an organ recipient, you have to be sick enough to warrant the organ, but not so sick that you wouldn't survive the trauma of the transplant. And so it's a very complicated thing, and they have a scoring system, etc. So anyway... Jim went a different route with what's called a living liver donor, and I believe he was number 104 in the world. It's crazy. And you'll hear in this podcast, which you can also watch, we'll have a link, but Jim Trafkent, Frank Finelli ended up being his living liver donor, and then his son Jeremy Trafkant are part of this discussion, and they tell a story, and I don't want to spoil the story, very few Christians are going to go through what these people did, very few people are going to go through what these folks did. But this is a story about God working in a health crisis that apart from someone else coming to help, two people would be dead. So without further ado, anything you want to inject about these folks?
1: I'll just say this was originally recorded at Emmanuel Bible Church and our friends over there Gave us their blessing. They said, Go with God. You can use the audio. So, <laughs> and we've had Jim on in context before. Yes. At least once. And we will link those interviews in the show notes if you want more Jim Trafficant, because you will want more Jim yes. Trafficant after you listen to this.
0: God often takes us to a place we didn't know we needed to go. So, all, he is all we have left. It's at the end of ourselves that we find joy, peace, his purpose, and that purpose found only in Christ. And sometimes we have to wonder if what's happening to you, is it possible it's actually happening for you, despite how it feels. And no matter where you are in your journey, no matter what you've done, Jesus promises to meet you where you are and love you back to life, his life for yours. It's the great exchange. No greater love has any man than he would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus was approached at one point by a young man who asked, you know, could you summarize all the law? And the answer was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And the second, love your neighbor like yourself. You could sum it all up that way. Well, it was July 19th, 1999. I was standing at the Dome at Johns Hopkins with my good friend and neighbor, Frank Finelli. It was a daunting day, a day where he could possibly lose his life. We stood arms around each other's shoulders 5.30 in the morning and prayed for all that he was facing. I went with him to the surgical unit where we sat together as the nurses whisked in and out, taking his vital signs. They gave him his IV. I watched him administer the medications. And then finally they came in around 7 o'clock and they said, Frank, it's time. He stood up as if on cue and we hugged and I promised that I would see him soon. And then Frank Finelli, with tears in his eyes, kissed his wife Kathy goodbye and was wheeled away to an operating room where he would risk his life For mine. I'll never get over it. I don't want to get over it. I hope by the time we're through, you won't be able to get over it either. I've been to the brink of death three times, and I want to tell you what I've learned. The first is that we can't do it ourselves. The second is when all else is gone, Jesus is enough. And thirdly, Christ's death and resurrection were for you and me. No matter what we've done, no matter what's been done to us, no matter how far away you might drift you're just one step away. We're never beyond his grace. Gwen and I were in our 20s, carefree, newly married. We moved to DC um, to get a job and we're living a dream. And then after all of a sudden I was coming home from work and I would just feel so tired that I would literally pull off on the side of the road and take a nap so I can finish getting home. And I was trying to excuse it. You know, I was working more than full time. I'm going to graduate school. I had all these things going on and Gwen wasn't buying it. She said, Jimmy, something's wrong, and you haven't had a physical since college. You need to go, let's start down a process and see what we can find. And it took years to finally get to a diagnosis, and it's taken us on a journey that we never could have imagined. Circumstances so dire, we eventually had to ask the question, is it possible that the crucible of life could be an agent of grace? I was suffering from a disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis. It's widening and narrowing of the bile ducts. So instead of the liver acting as a filter and helping you get rid of toxins in your system. Those toxins spill back onto the liver, and they scar it, and over time, you develop cirrhosis. And the disease progressed no matter what, no matter what the treatment, no matter what the medications. And finally, I was on a business trip, and I can still remember the phone call. My doctor called, and I can hear his words. He said, Jim, the disease is broken through, and you're going to need a transplant. And I was like, what? I was totally stunned. I knew it was a possibility. But I was in my 30s at the time. I thought, well, maybe it would come later. I never imagined that it would be this soon. It it like takes your breath away. And so I tried to think about what to do. Should I call Gwen? You know, so I waited till I got home and tried to find the right time to tell her. And then we had Ashley and Jeremy, and we cried, we prayed, we tried to prepare each other for what might lie ahead. And I went through extensive testing to get onto a, a list where I could be considered and prioritized for a transplant. And I finally made it onto the list. You go through a series of tests, each of them increasing in risk, each of them progressively more invasive. And I finally get on the list, and I'm with the doctor, and they come in and say, The good news is you're on the list. The bad news is your disease does not score well. They take your blood work, and there's an algorithm that they set priority, and they said, You're not going to move up the list. You're going to need to find a living donor. And I'm like, What? Now I got a C in anatomy, but you only have one liver. And I'm like, who am I going to go ask? Hey, uh, you know. That was like science fiction. It was so stunning. It just took our breath away. We didn't know it was even possible, and we couldn't fathom what was ahead. You can imagine the emotion. I didn't want anybody to intervene on my behalf. If someone volunteers to save my life and something happens to them, how could I ever live with myself? But if I don't allow somebody to intervene and something happens to me, what do I say to Ashley and Gwen and Jeremy? I had an opportunity, but I didn't take it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, our friend and former pastor, Michael Easley, was tracking all of my Hopkins appointments, and he learned of the news, and he called me, and he said, Jim, I'm going to be your donor, and you never asked, so you can't say no. And I'm like, Michael, this is crazy. They had just adopted two. Now they had four. I'm like, uh, what about Cindy? And he's like, Jim, we're just going to start down a path. If God has a different plan, he'll show us. Next thing you know, it's Michael and Cindy and Gwen and I going back and forth to Hopkins. Now, there are six tests, each of them progressive, like I mentioned, in risk and so on. And we go through the first day of testing, and I'm watching Michael go through these tests, and I've been through them multiple times. They're not pleasant. We're coming back after the end of that first day. And when you're physically weak, you're also weaker emotionally. And I'm struggling with the idea of Michael being my donor, it just was too much. My health was at the point where I I wasn't driving. So Gwen's driving. Cindy's in the front. We dropped Michael off at the church. He had a wedding rehearsal to attend to here. And then we're taking Cindy home. And I finally get up. You know, I'm like, "I, I can't do this. So I said to Cindy, we love you. I can't believe what you guys are trying to do for us, but it's too much. And I can't allow you to do it. And I would say that everybody needs a Cindy easily in their life she kind of comes back at you unvarnished, telling you what you need to hear in a way that you need to hear it. And she spins around and puts a finger on my chest. And she said, you know what your problem is? You're so busy stiff-arming everybody who's trying to help you. If Michael feels led to do this for you, it's not fair for you to deny us the blessing. Isn't that the problem for most of us? We can't receive. We want control. We want life on our terms. Even when we're trying to, if I'm dying, I'm trying to negotiate for my way. But if I was going to live, I had a choice, and I had to make it. I had to accept help when I couldn't control the terms, the conditions, or the outcome. I asked God to help me, and I needed to let go and allow God to control the circumstances in my life and also for Michael. So Michael completes all the tests. Now we're in pre-op where they walk us through what it's going to be like for him as the donor, for me as the recipient. 12 to 14-hour surgery, it's kind of daunting to listen to them describe what's about to happen. And in the middle of it, the surgeons walk in, and they said, guys, we're going to call it off. Michael, we looked at the last test, and in order to do this transplant, they divide the liver, and you get, like, half the arteries and bile ducts, and they get transplanted into the recipient. And the structure wasn't going to work. There was too much risk. They said, Michael, we think you'd be okay in the surgery, but it's too much risk for Jim. We're going to call it off. And I remember the doctors walking out, and it was silent. It felt like forever. Remember Michael praying? I called Gwen to tell her what happened, and then Michael and I drive the hour and a half back to Virginia. We small talk, you know, we're guys. We get to his house, and I stick out my hand to thank him for what he was about to do for me. And it's a little bit embarrassing, but it's exactly what happened. We cried like boys. Michael, because he wouldn't be my donor, which to this day, I can't understand. And me, because I was relieved my friend wouldn't have to go through the unthinkable. Then one of my sisters calls. We get home, and she calls. She says, Jimmy, don't change that date. I'll get down there tomorrow, we'll do all those tests that take three weeks, I'll do them in three days, I won't have time to think about it, and we'll just do it on Monday. (laughs) Now, my sister is afraid of needles, let alone a 12- to 14-hour surgery. But you know what? She showed up, she goes through the test, Friday night comes, perfect match. Doctors are excited, she is terrified. Now, she has to go home and say goodbye to her kids and her husband. My parents are now coming to the surgery with two of their kids going in, and on Saturday, my sister calls and says, Jimmy, I love you. I want to do this in the worst way. I just can't. I'm too afraid. And we didn't want anybody to intervene. And I remember Gwen and I were on the phone. We're trying to comfort her and the burden that she felt. And she's trying to help. And it was just too much to ask. Then from across the street comes my neighbor, Frank Finelli. This is all in the same week. I'm not kidding. Frank comes over and he goes, Jim, I'm really sorry to hear what happened with Michael and your sister but I've never been sick a day in my life, and maybe this is why. I'm like, Frank, you are nuts. You have no idea what you're signing up for. And he says, oh, yes, I do. I've been given health, and this is my chance to pass it on. We talked about Frank being an Army Ranger. These are the kinds of guys that jump out of an airplane to get 25 bucks in their pay at the end of the month. (laughs) And so it made total sense. But what we later learned from Kathy was that Frank, he said, I can't just sit across the street and watch him die. So, the next thing you know, it's Frank and I going back and forth to Hopkins. He goes through all the tests, and they say it's a match. Now it's July 19th. We're standing at the dome at Hopkins, arm around each other's shoulder, praying for our families and asking God to help us with whatever it is we're about to face. We had no idea. Frank has to go first. They operate on him for two and a half hours before they even find out if it's possible for me to go in. He has to totally commit. And prior to the surgery, Frank and I are sitting in this pre-surgical unit. You know, the nurses are coming in and out. They're giving us IVs and medications and checking our vital signs and stuff. And honestly, it's a little bit embarrassing. Me and Frank were friends, but not like this. We're sitting in the same room, like across from each other, and we're wearing hospital gowns, and we're kind of staring at each other. And Frank and I kind of look alike. And this is a fact about which I've tried to console him. And we're... (laughs) And it dawns on me. And I said, Frank, whatever you do, do not go to sleep now. If they take me first and throw out your liver, we're both history. <laughs> At about 7 o'clock, in came the nurses. Frank stood up as if on cue. He hugged Gwen and I, kissed Kathy by, and was wheeled away to an operating room where he'd risk his life for mine. I'm going to have him come up here and tell you what that was like for him. Now, he's a West Point grad. While you may not have heard of Geneva, you have heard of West Point. 17 years in the Army, including as an Army Ranger. If you haven't seen that, go on YouTube and watch it. You won't sleep tonight. Uh, He worked on the Hill with Senator Dan Coates, just amazing. And one of the top executives at the Carlisle, Global Private Equity. We used to joke in our family, Frank is setting the industry, and I'm running around down here trying to win contracts. But He's my friend, closer than a brother, and the guy that saved my life. Frank, come on up here.
3: It's delightful to be with you here this evening. And, you know, I've gotten really good at volunteering to do stuff whenever Jim calls borrow the lawnmower, donate a liver, come speak in a manual with him, so on and so forth. <laughs> so here I am, blessed to be joining you all this evening, but with so many people who helped pray us through this amazing situation now, years ago. And I'm so honored to talk about placing faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and enabling Him to control our lives. And let's be clear, I'm probably the luckiest guy on the planet to have had the opportunity to experience what God has placed along my path in life, requiring me to step into the unknown and trust God when I had complete uncertainty about the outcome of what I could not control. And I've had several big unknowns in my life. My first one was going to West Point. I was recruited to swim on the swim team. And I'll never forget in my senior year of high school going out to the military academy, and I said, man, this place is really cool. They have a 50-meter indoor swimming pool, and back then there weren't many of those. And they had these long overcoats with capes that they wore for the Army-Navy game. But I had no clue about the military. So I went to West Point to swim on the swim team and get a cool overcoat. I mean, what a dumb idea. Um, you know, it's interesting, serving in the military was just a tremendous blessing for me. You know, I had no clue about it. As I mentioned, my dad was a radar man in the Navy in World War II, You know, island hopping up to Okinawa. I, I didn't know anybody in the military. All we saw was when Army Jeeps from the National Guard would deliver mail when it snowed in the wintertime. It was just really cool. But another unknown was in the 82nd Airborne Division when I was a lieutenant at Fort Bragg. And are there any other paratroopers in the room? I see some hoop, right? Well, when you jump out of a perfectly good airplane, you're literally stepping into the unknown. And you don't know what's going to happen over the next 10 to 30 seconds. Are you going to fall to your death or are you going to have a soft parachute landing fall? Well, paratroopers are trained to jump out the door, count to four, ensure that your canopy's open, and if it doesn't, pull your reserve. So we would pray like crazy, jump out the door, go 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, and hopefully by then, your parachute would be open. And that happened to me every time except once. Um, and that's a different story for a different day, but thankfully I survived that too. But the lesson of these stories is that stepping into the unknown, you know, despite your anxiety about not being able to control the outcome, you should be confident that God has you covered and that he is in control of your life. And back when I was in the military, I prayed like the Dickens, asking God to do something for me, open my parachute, get me that promotion, fix my problems. But it really wasn't until 10 years later that, my good friend, Jim Trafficant, opened my heart and helped me accept Jesus Christ and know that God is in control of my life, that he has my every unknown. And so this evening, I want to tell you some of that amazing story. It's uh, a story really about literally stepping into the unknown and accepting that God is in complete control of our lives. And to provide some background on, on just this amazing path, let me take you back to when I was an Army major at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And we were being transferred to Washington, D.C. And this would be my family's seventh move in seven years. So my wife, Kathy, is an absolute saint for sure. But we were so excited about coming to a big city, buying a house, and just where we could stay for a couple of years. And if you could believe it, Kathy trusted me to fly to Washington, D.C. for the big house hunting trip to try to get a, a home for us while she stayed in Kansas with our three small children. And the first day I put down a deposit on a lot in Alexandria and I called her and I was so excited about my marvelous find and she was quite skeptical. So she called her friend, asked her to go out and do her own independent assessment. As you can guess, I flunked. So the next day I went out, got my deposit back in Alexandria and the Lord oriented me towards a neighbor at the Crosspoint neighborhood in Fairfax station where we built a house on Peach Court. And later that summer we became the first family on our cul-de-sac on Peach Court, and a month later, the traffic hands moved in right across the street. And so lots of things started happening that summer. Jim brought us to Emanuel, uh, which was awesome. I received an early promotion to lieutenant colonel, which was a recognition that virtually assured me to be selected to command an army battalion of about 500 soldiers and move away the next year. But I was not selected for command, and not once, but twice. And I was devastated, really started to question what was going on in the military and and why I was doing what I was doing. Was this really a career for me? Well, finally, in my third year at the Pentagon, I was selected for command, and and I was ecstatic. But I also recognized that Kathy was a little less than enthusiastic about the prospects of going back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and living in 1,400 square feet of Uncle Sam's finest housing. But two weeks later, I got a most unexpected call from Senator Dan Coates, or then-Senator Dan Coates, a wonderful Christian legislator from Indiana who wanted me to come work as his staffer with the Armed Services Committee. But this marvelous opportunity came at a price. I would have to retire from the Army. So Kathy and I prayed about this wonderful decision. We had two great opportunities, both of which I knew we would love, but in my heart, I felt that the Lord had provided this opportunity. It really opened a new door, a different profession, a stable environment for our family, and a chance to grow our relationship with the traffic cat. So I retired and went to Capitol Hill, where I find many Christians that really helped me in my walk with the Lord, which was amazing. But after one year as a staffer on the hill, I was driving home the night after we passed our defense authorization bill, and my car skidded out of control on a wet country road. And I remember losing orientation and coming to a stop, stop. But I didn't know what happened. So my car's still running, so I put it in reverse, and then I realized it wasn't going anywhere. And then I saw my cassettes on the ceiling, and I realized that I had flipped over. And so I quickly scurried out the window without a bump, scratch, or bruise. Just absolutely amazing. I could have died right there, but didn't happen. And the next day in our cul-de-sac, I saw Gwen, and Gwen gave me a big hug and said, Frank Finelli, the Lord has something special in store for you. Boy, little did we both know. And that fall, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon. And in the same week, learned of Jim's disease. And it just it really troubled me uh, that my good friend couldn't even run around the block, the guy who played hoops with my sons. Um, it just wasn't fair. And soon thereafter, Senator Coates retired, and I got fired, as is the custom on Capitol Hill. Um, and But I, I found my dream job in private equity with the Carlisle Group right here in Washington, D.C. And Kathy and I started realizing how wonderful life in the private sector could be. And then I'll never forget, February 28, 1999, one of the assistant pastors here at Emanuel, Jack Elwood, some of you may remember Jack, he really woke me up. He preached about IDBTM. It doesn't belong to me. My home, my health, My increasing wealth. Those five words guide me to this day. And it struck me that while I seemed to have everything going my way, my neighbor was fighting for his life. And I was really touched by Jack's reference to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Again doesn't belong to me. Well, Glenn told Kathy about this new living donor transplant procedure that was being done at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. And as Jim mentioned, it's miraculous. They take 60% of a donor's liver and the right branch of all the plumbing. They stick that into the recipient. And the miracle is that the liver masses grow back, so you have two guys with full livers and half the plumbing. But theoretically, it works great, right? I think we were the first unrelated donor-recipient pair. So kind of pioneers. I'm not sure that's what I really wanted to know at the time. But anyhow, it didn't matter. Um, so Kathy asked, asked Gwen what the criteria was for being a donor. And she said size. Jim and I were both about 6'2". Age, we were both around 40 then. And blood type, oh, positive. It turns out that Jim and I are both left-handers from northeastern Ohio, but that didn't matter. Um, and at that very moment, Kathy sensed that uh, the Lord was going to call me to be Jim's donor. And it's interesting that the Lord had also prepared Kathy for this situation. She was an Army brat, the daughter of an Army general with four silver stars from Vietnam, you know, wife of an Army combat arms officer. And so she knew what putting it on the line was all about. But it really didn't occur to me because Jim, as you mentioned, had a, you know, a bunch of donors lined up and I was just, you know, into my new dream job. So I cowardly volunteered to pray and don't add a pint of blood. But weeks progressed, and on June 15th, when Kathy told me that Jim had been notified that his last donor was disqualified, I said what we had known for months, that I needed to step forward and volunteer to be Jim's donor, that this really was the Lord's path. And, you know, I just think back to John's Gospel, chapters 15, verses 12 and 13. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid on his life for his friends. That evening, I walked across the cul-de-sac and told my neighbor that I wanted to be his donor. And Jim, as he mentioned, said, Frank, you're crazy. You don't know what you're doing. I said, yeah, you're right, but it doesn't belong to me. I'm not going to sit here and just watch you die. And so Jim reluctantly agreed to contact his doctors, and I prayed with Kathy and her parents about our decision. But I also had to confront the question of what would happen at work. So here I am, about four or five months of my new dream job, first great big deal, And I had to go tell the firm that I was going to be out for at least two to three months and maybe five or six before I could come back based on the extensive recuperation this would require. I thought they'd fire me. Well, I finally got up the courage to tell the senior partner and the CEO of the company I was working with that I was going to be a liver donor. And their response was astounding. They said, Frank, that's incredible. Don't worry about the deal. We'll get other guys to cover it. Also, don't worry about your family or medical care. We'll ensure that you... Kathy and the kids are taken care of. Unbeknownst to me, Jim even called Alan and offered to pay for my salary while I was incapacitated. But Alan said no way and asked if there was anything that Carlisle could do to help the Trafficant family. So in addition to all God had done for me, he also led me to a firm with men led by principal. And over the next two weeks, you know, I sailed through all the tests, healthy as a horse and big liver to boot. And... The surgery was set for July 19th. Indicative of the Lord's intricate planning, it turns out that I had a very rare condition. I had a third bile duct, which was inactive in me, but popped right into action when it was put into gym. Who would have, you know, God's handiwork. And as he mentioned, that morning of the surgery, we went to the rotunda of the Johns Hopkins Hospital. And if any of you have been there, there's this huge, beautiful statue of Jesus with an inscription from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we prayed for ourselves and our doctors and our families that God would guide us through what we really didn't know was going to happen over the next hours, days, months, weeks, whatever. And for 10 long hours, I was in surgery, and, and Jim, who started two hours after me, was on the table for 12 and that evening, the doctors came out to notify Kathy and Gwen that the surgery was successful. We just had to pray that the transplant would work. And I remember slowly awaking in intensive care and couldn't believe the, inten- the, you know, the just excruciating pain. What did I do? You know, I thought I'd been asleep for, for a whole day, but it really wasn't. I was kind of, ex- you know, groggily existing, passing second by second, minute by minute, constantly pushing for more morphine. And, you know, I would get my buttons all mixed up, my morphine button, my call button. I mean, I was pushing every button I could find. Driving the nurses crazy. Um, and Jim seemed to recover, you know, more quickly, improving really the first day with his new liver. But for me, something was very wrong. My vision was blurred. My left arm was numb. My internal levels were not improving. And day after day, my situation worsened, and it became apparent that my digestive system was not working. And the doctors really couldn't agree on what to do. Their only consensus was that my health was deteriorating rapidly. Some wanted to send me back to surgery, but others thought that 68 hours under the knife would be way too much for my system to take. And these were frightening moments when Kathy and I really didn't know what was going to happen. Now, Jim and I would do a daily devotional using Chaplain of the Senate Lloyd Ovalley's book, One Quiet Moment, which had been given to me by Senator Coates. And on July 26th, after perhaps the most disparaging night of my life, the Lord gave us an unmistakable message. The verse was from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter eight, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the chaplain's prayer was as powerful as could be. Gracious God, I begin this day with three liberating convictions. You are on my side, You are by my side, and you are the source of my strength inside. Help me to regain confidence that comes from knowing that you are for me and not against me. And after that, Jim and I just were stunned and looked at each other and said, wow, knowing that God had sent us the strongest of messages, that we really would prevail through this transplant situation because he was leading us through the unknown. And and I mean, look, we were stripped of everything, uh, every want, every emotion, virtually every thought. It was only pain and prayer with God. But I have to tell you, for those six days, I've probably never been closer to our Lord. Well, finally, the doctors figured out how to put a tube down my nose and my intestine that relieved the blockage, and I started coming back to life, thank God. But as my health improved, Jim-mannered rejection. You know, we had dreamed of entering Peach Court together arm in arm, but that wasn't going to happen. But I'll never forget the night before I left the hospital they gave Jim the two pints of blood that I had banked for the surgery and not used. And he comes running in my room at 6 o'clock the next morning, bouncing off the walls because his blood cell count was probably higher than it had been in years. But he wanted to pray one last time before I got discharged and Kathy and I went home. So in short, the Lord you know, gave me an experience that changed my life forever, uh, enabling me to focus on him in a way that I could have never imagined. And as we left Johns Hopkins Hospital on that August 3rd, we knew that we had stepped in the unknown and been led through it by our Lord and Savior. And within weeks Jim and I were back on Peach Court together and we would have never made it through the transplant were it not for the grace of God and the prayers of countless Christians from this church and all literally all around the world. And I stand before you this evening just so grateful that the Lord made, you know, laid out an unmistakable path that even a dummy like me could follow it. And please understand, you know, there's nothing special about me. I mean, all I did was volunteer to do something I didn't understand, right? Um, The real message here is that God will take care of those of us who put our trust in him. Now, there's a hundred reasons why I should have never been on that peach court cul-de-sac to even meet the traffic cans, let alone to have served as Jim's donor. It's only through the work of the Lord's hand that we were brought together, complete strangers, and are now closer than brothers, And it's the Lord's same handiwork that's in your lives today. So in closing, I'd like to leave you with two thoughts. First, I mentioned Jack Elwood's first wake-up call, It Doesn't Belong to Me. Those are five simple words that really frame my thinking as we went through the transplant and even to this day. I encourage you to think about those five words as you head home this evening to your family, your friends, your belongings, your job, all of which are gifts from God. What I haven't talked about is the second wake-up call I got from Jack when he called me several years later to talk at a, you know, to give a speech at a prayer breakfast here at Emmanuel, And Jack said, Frank, I don't want to talk, you know, I don't want you to talk about your liver problems anymore. He said, congratulations, you unknowingly agreed to get sawed in half. That's great. I don't want to hear that anymore. I want to know what are you doing now? What are you doing now? five more frightening words, and I think about those all the time. And so it's a real challenge to keep advancing our faith, and it's another great question to ponder. Second, I may have had a hand, or should I say a liver, in saving Jim um, from certain death, and gosh, we're so honored to see him here today, healthy as a horse, and and healthier than we could have ever imagined. But years later, Jim and Gwen were torn apart emotionally because their then 23-year-old daughter, Ashley, was stricken with the same devastating liver disease and required a transplant. That transplant was on November 8, 2013. And so that's when she was in an operating room at the University of Minnesota. And the situation gets even more complicated. Ashley's living donor was her amazing brother, Jeremy, a hero for Christ. How would you feel to hug your only two kids and watch them get wheeled away into an operating room? Knowing only as Jim can understand that they're about to go through a tremendously painful and tremendously dangerous surgery. Now, think about that for a moment and say a prayer of thanks for the blessings you have in your life and a prayer of praise for the Lord's healing hands. Now, if you can believe it, where do you think I was on November 8th, 2013 at noon? Right at the peak of the surgery. I was speaking at a luncheon at Tyson's Corner about Jim's and my liver transplant. And what's so miraculous about this timing is that Phil Cradival, who's an assistant pastor over at Vienna Presbyterian, asked me more than six months earlier to speak at that date, at that time, before anybody even knew Ashley needed a transplant. So it's only through the Lord's handiwork that you could bring 100 Christians together at a lunch, to pray for Jeremy and Ashley while they're on the operating room table. It's the Lord's handiwork. Absolutely amazing. Well, I'm honored to ask Jeremy to come up now and tell us about that story. Jeremy?
4: Thanks. Thanks so much. It feels appropriate that today we're here and it's the 23rd anniversary of that transplant to just really thank Frank and Kathy for your generous gift. I think it's something where... My dad would not have been here to share it tonight if it weren't for your courageousness. So you got to know, and I know I say it a lot, and at least annually, but today in front of some folks, thank you, thank you. You really just saved my family. So thank you for that. God prepares us for what we don't know is ahead. The day that my dad went back to work after recovering from what was actually his second transplant, um, which is another story for another time, uh, my mom was taking Ashley, my sister, to doctor's appointments. But doctors weren't sure of what was going on. After months of seeing different doctors and specialists, we had an answer. And the week after my sister turned 16, she was diagnosed with the same liver disease that my dad had. And I knew what that meant, and I felt the weight of those words. Ashley had been chronically ill for about eight years. And I remember coming home from school when I was a sophomore in college and sitting on my parents' deck while Ashley was asleep crying to and with them, acknowledging the fact that Ashley wasn't doing well. And each time I came home, she was getting worse. And I watched her go from being a healthy person to sleeping about 15 to 20 hours a day, unable to walk more than 20 feet, and would have to stop and catch her breath within that process. These were moments where it broke my heart to watch my sister's dreams deferred and now in the throes of a fight against time. I had moments of true panic, thinking of the reality of not having my sister in the next six months to a year. But God, he showed up in those moments, not in ways that I really expected. And frankly, I was angry and I was mad that God would let someone like my sister, young and full of aspiration, be confronted with such illness. And I'm just supposed to sit there and be okay with it? Uh, With trusting there's a plan, honestly, at that point, I was fed up. But God spoke to me and showed up in a way that was tangible on a day when I felt most distant. When I was in high school, I learned on a mission trip to Mexico, actually with the youth group here, um, the importance of taking time just to step back and listen. Our lives are so saturated with sports, media, school, work, so many other things, and we're so busy that we're sometimes out of touch from simply just pausing and listening to the Lord and waiting for what He has to say. So I did just that. A weekend in my sophomore year of college, I decided on that Friday I was going to take 24 hours to fast, drive, and just listen. So I told my roommate at the time, hey, I'm unplugging. I'm going away for 24 hours, and I'm going to go drive this off-road trail that I found out bordering West Virginia. And if I'm not home in 24 hours, come find me because there's no cell service, and I'm probably in a ditch. (laughs) So the next morning, I wake up. I grab a bottle of water. I got a snack in case I get into some kind of an emergency And um, I start driving out towards that trail. Once I get there, I'm feeling confident, and I'm like, well, you know what? Since I have the entire day, I'm just gonna see where it actually leads, because I had not really explored it that much. And almost two hours pass, and I'm locked in on this single lane road with no opportunity to turn around. And I felt nervous, and I decide rather than sitting and listening, typical of me, I start talking. So I start talking to God, and I say things like, God, where are you? I feel frustrated, and I feel lost. And you got to help me find a way out of here. This whole time that I've been driving, it had actually started to snow. And so I'm weaving on this one-lane road that has some drop-off on either side, and I'm just hoping my truck keeps traction and I find a way to get out of there. And as I'm processing with God, I come upon a campsite where I'm able to make about a 35-point turn and get back down that same road. And as I head down that road, I realize that what I've been saying to God was something I needed to hear myself. I didn't just feel that way about driving, but I felt that way about my situation. Trying to be a college student while watching my sister deteriorate, I was exhausted. And to be honest, I had a good cry. And I had to relinquish my fears and my concerns and allow God to work and not try to personally manhandle the situation into what I wanted it to be. It was a day that formed how I I view hardships and God was preparing me for what was to come. Because not only did he soften my heart that day, but he set my eyes forward and I ended up with the opportunity to fight for the solution that has so long been a thorn in my side and my sister's health. I'd always known if I had the chance to donate in Oregon, I would, as you heard. Um, my dad went through living donor liver transplant when I was in kindergarten, and Frank was that donor. And Frank is someone that I view as a role model to this day. Watching him go through that process though sparked in me a similar desire. Probably not the wisest desire. (laughs) I was going to donate at some point in my life, but never in a million years would I have thought it would be to my sister. So at this point now, I'm a sophomore in college, and I'm watching my sister's health take a drastic decline. And I realize there's a chance for me now to take action. She had an appointment with her surgeon in Minnesota coming up, and I asked my family if I could just tag along. At the time, my mom was actually going through the process to become a donor. And so there's all this different testing you have to do and a plethora of appointments and everything else. And this is the meeting or the appointment we were going to find out, is my mom a match or is she not? So I said, all right, this is going to be my chance to go. So what we heard, though, was she could be a match. But if there's someone that could be closer to a match, we want to wait and see. And so at that moment, I remember sitting in that room, and all of a sudden I'm hit with a cold sweat. And my mind just starts to race. And all that I had felt mentally prepared for was now laid before me. And God had been working in my heart to walk this path with him at my side since the first transplant. So I took some time to call friends. I talked to my parents. I Google and I look on WebMD, which is never the right choice, especially when trying to figure out, (laughs) am I going to be a liver donor? Don't do it. Um, And out of all those calls and interactions, I decided to call who would become my transplant coordinator. And tell her, I want to step forward and begin testing. And it actually began the very next day. We had a couple days in Minnesota, had that appointment. And then, lo and behold, I thought I had a pause and I didn't. I was right in there. Testing included blood work, imaging, meeting with a nutritionist, meeting with a social worker, meeting with a psychologist. And since I was younger than the typical donor, I also had to meet with a neuropsychologist. And I'm honestly still not sure of what that means. But a benefit of all this testing is I can now have medical proof to everybody that I'm normal. <laughs> so once testing is complete, the transplant board meets weekly regarding our case, and they deliberate for a couple weeks. And it's a pregnant pause in this process that up to this point was a whirlwind. Anxiety builds, fear creeps in, but you just have to put one foot in front of the other and trust. And finally, it's a weekday morning in October, and I'm woken up by a phone call, And it's my transplant coordinator. And she starts the call asking if she woke me up. And I was blatantly lying. I go, no. And like groggy and everything. And she continues and tells me that I'm a match. And we could do the transplant in two weeks. So now I was awake. (laughs) And I try to remain calm. And I pause and I say, okay, well, are there any other dates? I had a moment of clarity where I realized that this would be my one time to donate an organ. Or my liver. Um, I wanted to be able to process that in a healthy way and sit in those emotions, even though there's sometimes and oftentimes fear, so that I could be able to help walk other donors through this process. I had Frank, and by this point, a couple other donors um, who had walked me to the start and the finish line, and I wanted to be able to do the same for others. So my coordinator comes back and says, there is a date, and it's early November, November 8th, and the date is set. So now I start calling my family, my friends, and let them know what I'm now signed up for. And my head was honestly just spinning. What I'd always said I would do, I am doing. So I begin the process of withdrawing from my classes in the spring, which I'd already registered for. My family begins looking for a house in Minnesota. Typically, after one of these surgeries, you need to be around your care team because it's it's not like a simple thing. So you need to be able to have checkups, everything else. You're around for about a month. And then... I begin the process of saying goodbye to my friends at school. You know, I get to hug on everyone, and then I move home on October 19th. And we move to Minnesota October 21st. So now we're there, I've committed, and we're meeting with the medical team. And it's the day before surgery, and my nerves are on high alert. I'm realizing that what we're about to do, and hearing all the risks of surgery again, But a verse that my friend, Andrew Washington, shared with me earlier that year, and it remains one of my favorite verses to this day, has rung true in this entire period. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardship and persecution and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's coming out of 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. So I wake up, and it's 3.30 in the morning, and it's the morning of surgery. And it's time for rubber now to meet the road. I had to clean my chest with this spray, and to say that I'm, like, trembling is an understatement. I'm nervous, I'm anxious, because it's here. And I open my bedroom door, which faced Ashley's room. And for the past couple weeks of living in Minnesota— I would fall asleep to the sound of Ashley across the hall, moaning and writhing in pain from her symptoms as she fell asleep each night. But this morning was different. I opened my door around 3 a.m. and I looked across to Ashley's room and she's dancing in the hallway. A day that was terrifying for me was one that held potential and hope for my sister. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. So our family prays together. We load up into the car to make our way to the hospital. And I remember being admitted into the hospital and walking my sister, Ashley, into the pre-op area where I'm taken back first as the donor. Um, And we had friends from church and family from out of town flying to be with us that morning. We took time to be together, to pray, to laugh, um, and then fully prepped for surgery. There's this great medication they give you, and I don't know if Frank or my dad had it at that point, where it relaxes you. And I went in super anxious, and they administered this medication, and all of a sudden, you just have a clear line of sight to what you're gonna do, and you're locked in. And the surgery went well. After nine or so hours, you wake up in a lot of pain, um, but it's done, and you're on the other side. Ashley always talks about how when she woke up from surgery, she felt well. Um, don't get me wrong, we both felt that pain and weakness of having been through a major 10-hour surgery, but she could tell that she was no longer sick. She went from being in a wheelchair to walking the day after surgery. Granted, it was maybe 10 feet, and honestly, I think I made it less than 10 feet the day after surgery. But this time, she was holding on to the wheelchair to steady herself instead of being in it. After several months of long recovery, Ashley and I were able to return back to college that fall, both looking at a healthy life. Watching my family go through these multiple transplants and fight so hard to get back to a level playing field, it had an influence on so much of who I am. One, I'm an advocate for organ donation. It's a powerful thing. You provide life back, and it's also just a simple box that you check when you're at the DMV, and you're giving life to others. So if you haven't done it, I would encourage you. It's an amazing gift to so many. Because I was a living donor, though, um, right after our transplant, I had the opportunity to walk multiple donors through that process, as from a patient's perspective. I also had a harder go of recovery. And I actually ended up with a couple different complications, similar to what Frank had. And one that I had in addition as well was um, one of my lungs had collapsed. And so I remember at that point, you have x-rays and scans occurring every single day. And you're in so much discomfort because so you have a scar going right across your abdomen. And they're trying to slide you onto a table. And it's just no fun. And I remember being in a scan on one specific day after looking at my lungs and seeing if I'm getting any capacity back to be able to breathe. And I look at the clock and I realize I'm gasping for air faster than the second hand can move on a clock. In that moment, my parents were called into the hallway. I was like, oh my gosh, don't leave me. <laughs> but they were actually called out to meet a woman who was at the hospital for her two-year checkup after being a donor. And she had heard that I was having a rough go and she was searching for me around the hospital looking to find me. And in the very moment that I needed some encouragement. So she waited in the hall for my scan to complete, and she met me, and I got to see that she was okay, and I was reassured that while this was a very hard moment, it wasn't forever. And if she could do it, I could do it. Her comments and willingness to love on me in a moment like that gave me the drive to continue pushing through recovery. Now... I get to work in the health industry. I spent my first 27, 28 years of life watching my mom go through the process of trying to understand EOBs, how do you deal with health insurance, what's the difference between a provider and an insurer, and all these different things. And my job now is to look at all of that experience between health insurance and the providers and try to find a way to make it fun or intuitive or whatever you may want to say. Fun's not likely it, but at least you can follow it. But really what this has always taught me is the value of life. If you had clarity of a potential end date, would you choose to live differently? Only God knows the number of our days, and what I've come to appreciate is the value in every day. It's something that we get to celebrate and to enjoy, time with friends and family. It's also driven how I love others. Am I that person waiting in the hallway just to pass some encouragement to a stranger who I know is having a hard day, like that woman did for me? Someone who shows up for people in the workplace, in my neighborhood, at the grocery store. The process of these transplants, it wasn't easy, but it's not something I would trade. I had the realization several years ago that if it weren't for the discovery and creation of transplants, my family would look so different. My mom and I would be the only two people left. But because of what God has done and what doctors and scientists have discovered, we're able to remain a full family unit. What a gift.
3: I'm
4: going to wrap
0: us up here. I've got a couple comments to make. Before Jeremy went into surgery, Frank had written a letter. Before we went to Minnesota. I walk into Jeremy's room the night before surgery, and there's that letter sitting on his nightstand. When you have a fixed end date, everything changes. The first transplant saved my life. There were a number of surgeries that came after. It led to septic shock. And the septic shock led to a second transplant. And I remember I was working in Tyson's, and I get a call from my doctor. He's like, "Today's your day. It's time to go to the surgery." And I was like, "I'm at work. I'm trying to think of what to do." So I start negotiating because that's what I do at work. I just start talking to the nurse. Like, and she's like, "Stop." Doctor Pruitt says, "This is your chance. We have been told that I'd probably die. A high probability I would die in the surgery." I'm definitely going to die if I don't go. So I called Gwen. I said, "Hun, get the kids out of school. They said today's the day. It's two days in front of Thanksgiving. It's rush hour. We got to get to UVA. And so I start driving. I'm coming home, and I called my parents. I called the president of Harris. I was working at the company there. And I said to them, if something happens tonight, take care of Gwen and the kids. I try calling Frank, and I can't reach him. So I leave a message, and and I'm just kind of closing things down. We get home and we get in our kitchen and we pray for this family that we have yet to meet. That in the midst of their grief, they would afford me another chance at life. And then Gwen and I leave the kids. And let me tell you, when you leave your kids for the last time, we drive to UVA. And I get to the hospital and they they run a couple tests or some complications. They're like, what do you want to do? I'm like, well, what do you want to do? And they said, we think we should go for it. We're going for it. And uh, they said, can you walk to the operating room? And I'm like, yeah. So we're walking. I'm holding hands with Gwen. And we get there. We're on the fifth floor. We're going to the second where the surgery would occur. And I, I press the button. The door opens. And it's Frank. Frank's in the elevator, the only guy who knows what it's like to walk into that surgery. We go down to the second floor. I thank Frank for the thousandth time. I give Gwen my ring. And I kiss her and I thank her for all she's done to get us to the point where we could have this opportunity. I walk into the operating room and they say, Hey, can you get up on the table? I said, Yeah, but it feels like I'm the only one doing anything around here. When do you people go on the clock? So I get in there and they said, Can you stick your arm out? And they fasten it. they stick your arm out and they fasten. And I remember praying. And I said, Lord. If you could best be honored by taking my life, it's yours. As if I have a say in the matter. But if you wake me up, I can't wait to serve. And I thanked it for the privilege if I were to die that I had to die in the position of the cross. The next thing I heard was Gwen's voice, and it was like euphoria, not because I lived because I woke up with a purpose. And I woke up, and I want you to know, when you wake up after that surgery, your disease is gone. You're in a lot of pain, but you know that you're well. It's amazing. I want to pause here for just a minute. And I woke up in the operating room. But it's a different experience in the waiting room. And I know a lot of you have been there. And being a patient has given me a great appreciation for caregivers. Not only the healthcare workers and the amazing things they're able to do, but friends and family who are taking care of loved ones. And if you're a caregiver, you are an unsung hero. I recognize that at times it has to feel overwhelming You wake up and you go through another day feeling isolated by somebody else's illness. Thank you. But I want to encourage you that you're making a tomorrow possible for those under your care. And being a caregiver matters in the physical and as well as the emotional healing process. And all three of us here tonight are proof that you're enabling a tomorrow you can't imagine when it seems impossible today. I tell Gwen all the time, thank you for loving me to life. And after 30 years of illness, our family's well again. It's amazing. But I don't want you to think this is a victory lap. I'd like to tell you I handled all this well, but it wouldn't be true. I want to let you know that faith in Christ is a total surrender. And as Jeremy said, just as I was getting better, Ashley got sick. The disease is not supposed to be genetically predisposed, but Mayo had a database of 1,000 patients. Only two had a parent-child relationship. We fit that profile. God took me a place to a place that I didn't know I needed to go. I had control when I was sick. I had no control when it was the kids. I remember praying, and I'm sharing this with you, and this is just honest. I said, Lord, you know I do this a thousand times, and I wouldn't flinch. Why do you got to go past me to my kids? It's probably not a very honorable prayer, but it was an honest one. What I later learned again, was it wasn't about me, it was about him. I came to appreciate Gwen in ways that I couldn't have otherwise. I went from the operating room to the waiting room where she had been all along. And I admitted to Gwen and Ashley and Jeremy at this point, when I'm watching Ashley suffer, I wasn't too happy. I, I was struggling. And Ashley, who's laying there emaciated, she says to me, Dad, you need to read this book. Your God is too safe. I'm like, okay, Ash, I'll read the book. Well, the book, is a, it's a metaphor of the Christian life. It's written by a pastor. talks about this country in Africa where the borders don't quite touch. There's 300 yards in between. You're going from a place to a place, and you kind of hover in no man's land. And it's a metaphor for how we live. And sure enough, that's me. The second half of the book is how do you get out? I would never turn from following Christ no matter what. And Gwen and I, we locked from the time we got married We were marching forward. There was no turning back. But I got to tell you, this was hard. And then we're getting out of borderland. He comes to a passage in Isaiah 40, which is really familiar. And it says, they that wait on the Lord, he will renew your strength. You will mount up with wings like eagles. You'll run and not grow weary. You'll walk and not faint. And I'm like, and then he said, but whenever you see a progression in the Old Testament, it's always from the lesser to the greater. And I'm like, wait a second. I want to soar. I want to run. Unless the greatest thing that God asks of us is to take the next step and walk. That realization completely changed my life. And it can change yours. After Ashley and Jeremy's surgery, the University of Minnesota was rebranding the hospital. I'd become friends with the surgeon. We were friends for years. They were rebranding the hospital around that surgeon and the kids. And so Gwen and I and the kids were sitting on this couch. We're being interviewed by an Academy Award-nominated director. And he says, Jeremy, 10 to 12 hours and you might die? You had to be afraid. Any man would be afraid. What was your greatest fear? And without hesitation, he said that I would wake up and Ashley wouldn't. And then he said to Ashley, you've been sick for so long, you probably can't remember what it's like to be well. What's next? She said, I could dream again. That's the tale of the Christian as we go from death. life. So here are the takeaways. Many of us have placed our trust in Christ and somehow we've lost our passion. It's kind of waned. It's become too familiar. We don't realize the awesomeness of what he's given us. What's first in your life? Is it your job, your family? What is it? Because it will define everything else. And we need to ask the Lord to refuel, to rekindle that spark in us that we had when we first came to know him, that we could serve him and love him more and help others as a result. For those of you that yet to place your trust in Christ alone, the Christian life is an incredible journey. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not based on feelings or experience. It's based on what Jesus has done for us. If you feel isolated as a caregiver, or maybe you're struggling with loss or the harshness of life, and you're wondering where is God, you are not alone. He is not put off by those questions. He went through it himself. When Jesus went to the cross, it was the great exchange. In fact, the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. The cross wasn't just physical agony. It was spiritual isolation. He was alone. Remember what he said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it was at that moment our sin Mine and yours was placed on him. He took it for us so we wouldn't have to. He suffered so we wouldn't have to. We deserve the penalty, but he took it himself. Forgiveness, purpose, hope, grace, they come at tremendous cost. You don't have to take my word for it. Just read the Gospels. Jesus died on the cross, was buried on the third day, and he rose again that we could live. We can't do it ourselves. The Apostle Paul wrote, you're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of our works. The Bible says it's our sin that separates us from God. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the just for the unjust, his life for yours, his holiness for our selfishness. The wages of our sin is death, eternal separation from God, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ. The Bible says that he loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever had trust in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible says when we follow Christ, we step out of death into life. It's like waking up after surgery and knowing your disease is gone. You're alive again. Friends, give your life to Christ. Let him heal your life in your heart. You can't do it yourself. So he did it for you. And when life seems like it's crashing in, you have to understand that Jesus gets it. He understands and he is enough. And we can't control our circumstances, but we can sure control our response. No matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how far away you've drifted, you're never beyond his grace. Just come on back. Take the next step. It's time to wake up. Know your disease is gone. You can go from death to
1: life. What are you
2: waiting for?
1: Place your trust in Christ. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.